Take your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3, where we will continue and complete <coughs> excuse me, our series on what in the world is God doing? What in the world is God doing? Sometimes as we go through life, we find things that happen to us and we cannot quite understand how they are a part of God's plan for us. You remember in week one, we looked at the fact that Habakkuk asked, how could just, uh, injustice and sin continue to multiply, <coughs> excuse me, continue to multiply in the land of Judah and God apparently doing nothing about it. In effect, he asked the question, God, what in the world are you doing? It doesn't seem like you hear my prayers. It doesn't seem like the righteous are prospering. It doesn't seem like the wicked are being punished. And he asks God, what in the world are you doing? And then God answers him and reminds him that although God's ways are often mysterious and often misunderstood, they are always masterful. Because all of history follows his divine plan, his divine purpose, and his divine timetable. He then announced to Habakkuk that he was going to raise up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And they would come in and God would use them as an instrument of discipline against his children. <coughs> Describing how they what they would do they were the the most vile and most ferocious people of the day and they they just came in and basically obliterated everyone children women everyone old young didn't matter to them their strength was uh, their god and the, the more they could get the more they wanted and the more they would seek to take <coughs> excuse me when Habakkuk heard that, he had another question. God, why in the world would you take someone as evil and as wicked as the Chaldeans and use them to chasten and discipline your children? That doesn't make sense to me, God. I, I see what you're doing. You answered that. Excuse me. But why would you do it that way? Why would you take the most wicked people alive and use them to discipline your children? And he tried to work out in his mind how this thing could be. How it is that God could use such a wicked people to accomplish his purpose and plan. He stopped and he talked to God about it. He restated the ba basic biblical principles that he knew. He attempted to apply the principles to the problem, but he still couldn't quite figure out why God would do it that way. And so he said, I'm going to climb up on my watchtower and I'm going to wait and see what God will say unto me. And what, how I will reply or respond when I am reproved. And so he waits. He waits expectantly. He waits intentionally for God 
to answer. Now his situation still hasn't changed. He still lives in a land of great injustice, great sin. And he still has the message that even greater injustice and greater sin is about to come upon the people of Judah for their backsliding, for their idolatry. And so last week we looked at God's answer to Habakkuk's question, why would you do it that way, God? And he answered Habakkuk with four assurances. He said, rest assured my plans are sure. Rest assured my people are secure. Rest assured my pronouncements are steadfast. Rest assured my purposes are set. In other words, he said, I am in control. Trust me. You do not have to understand me. Just trust me. It's a lot like when we have little children and we tell them to do something. What's the question they always ask? Why? Why do I have to do that? Sometimes even bigger kids ask that question. Why? Why do I have to do that? And sometimes, as parents, we say, just do it because I said so. Or because it's the right thing to do it. And as Habakkuk asked the question, why in the world, God, would you do it that way? He says, just trust me. Just trust me. Rest assured, my plans are sure, my pronouncements are steadfast, my purposes are set, my people are secure. And so today we come to chapter 3. And as we read chapter 3, it may seem like we want to make sure we don't think of it as just a postscript, as the note says here, but rather that it is an important part of this book. Some commentators have even suggested that it was added later. It is a psalm. It's much like some of the petition psalms in the book of Psalms in our Old Testament. And yet it is the pinnacle of praise for the journey that Habakkuk has been on. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles, let me get turned over there myself. Let's read chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigonoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of thy years. In the midst of thy years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. Father, as we hear your word today, may the Spirit speak through me and to us that we might know what the Spirit saith to his church. <coughs> may we be encouraged. May we be challenged. May we be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Habakkuk responds to God's assurances with a prayer. It is not just a prayer like sometimes we do at church where we have an opening prayer and a closing prayer and it's just kind of, you know, it's part of the program. <coughs> but it's a prayer that brings to us his understanding of what in the world God is doing in his situation. And by example, 
and by illustration in ours. As we look this morning at this prayer, I want to notice three features. Let's see here if we can get going. Maybe. There we go. Maybe not. <laughs> there we go. As we look at three, chapter 3, verses 119, we discover that Habakkuk responds to God's assurances and is still uncertainty. Not all of his questions have been answered by a prayer of adoration and humility. And we want to note three features of that prayer. Notice, first of all, his petition to God. There is an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along this morning. His petition to God. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigonoth. Now, we don't know what Shigonoth means. It may be a musical term. It may be a musical uh, number. It may have some other meaning. There's no clear understanding of what the word means. But we won't want to get lost in what we don't understand and rather get, spend our time what we do understand. O oh Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O oh Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. Notice, first of all, his petition to God. It was a petition based upon God's word. He says, Lord, I have heard what you said. What had the Lord said? Rest assured. Trust me. Obey me. I'm in control. Rest or my word is sure. My people are secure. My pronouncements are steadfast. My purposes are set. He says, in essence, trust me. I've got this. You don't have to worry about all the details. Just trust me. It's a petition based upon God's word, what he heard. As we read God's word and as we, the Spirit of God helps us to understand it, enlightens our hearts and our minds, then we are responsible to live and to pray in accordance with the word of God. It is the word of God that should direct our praying. It is the word of God that should direct our requests, our petitions, even as it did Habakkuk. And then notice, secondly, it was a petition offered in reverence and awe. Notice here it says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. He says, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. A better translation was awed. When I heard Habakkuk says what God said, it was all striking. God alone is awesome. I know we use the word awesome a lot in our conversations today. Personally, I choose to use the word awesome only for God. Only God is really awesome. And when Habakkuk hears what God is doing, he prays based on God's word, and he offers his prayer with reverence and awe. 
This morning, Rachel read from us from Hebrews about going into the throne room of God and there finding mercy. And says we can come boldly, and we can come boldly, but we still need to come reverently. The invitation is open. Come in any time you want. But there is still a recognition that we pray to an awesome God. He's an awesome God. And so that tempers our attitude. That tempers our requests. That tempers how we relate. Our God is an awesome God. And the prophet Habakkuk says, when I heard thy speech and was afraid, a petition offered in reverence and awe. Next, it was a petition reminding God of his promises. He says, revive thy work. What work? The work that God started back in Genesis chapter 12 when he called out Abram from Ur of the Chaldees and when he told him that he would make him the father of many nations. And those of us who are studying in our, the open door small group, we're studying uh, Abraham's life. Today we finish up Abraham's life. But we see that his life was a life of believing God and believing God's promises. And Habakkuk, who is several hundreds of years later, still is banking on those promises, still expecting God to answer his petition according to his promises. It's interesting to me throughout the scripture how often the people of God remind God of his promises. It's not because God has a short memory and someone has to remind him. But it's because it is by reminding God of his promises that we are encouraged and that we are challenged to trust him. When we see how God's hand has worked throughout the centuries and we remind him of what he said he's going to do and the parts he's already done of it, it serves as an encouragement to us. Therefore, it's good to stop and be reminded of the promises of God. But notice also it's a petition requesting God's mercy. He says, in the midst of thy work, when you are disciplining the children of Judah through all of these things that you have said that are going to come, and they are terrible things. They are things that were unexpected, certainly things unwanted. But he said, in the midst of that, Remember your mercy. Our God is a God of mercy. If you're sitting in a, here this morning or under the sound of my voice this morning and Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that is because of the mercy of God. Our God is a merciful God. He shows mercies to generations thousands upon thousands of people. Not one of us deserves to be in his family. 
but by his great mercy, he has called us and made us his own. And so we have a petition based upon God's word, a petition offered with reverence and awe and humility, a petition reminding God of his promises, and a petition requesting God's mercy. Habakkuk says, no matter, God, I, I understand what you're saying. I can't even imagine the trial and difficulty that's going to come. But what I can't imagine is that even in the midst of that, you can be merciful. Sometimes we're praying for people. Sometimes we're working with people, and especially those who are blatantly, as they were, thumbing their nose against God. And we have to be careful because we can have a spirit of anger. We can have a spirit of that's what they deserve, so let them have it. But Habakkuk says, in the midst of all this, do they deserve God's punishment? Yes. Do they deserve God's discipline? Yes. Do they deserve God's chastening? Yes. But in the midst of it all, God, please have mercy. Things haven't changed today. There are millions of men and women and boys and girls who deserve the judgment of God, who deserve the wrath of God, who deserve to be totally separated from God for eternity. But God, who is rich in mercy, reaches down and saves men and women and boys and girls for his glory and for their good. How much more should we, as we face the evils of our day, plead for mercy? Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there applied for me. Mercy. And so his petition but notice the second part, second feature of his prayer was his pondering of God. Are you beginning to see a pattern? Throughout the book of Habakkuk, in every chapter, Habakkuk stops and reminds himself of who God is and what he's promised. Some might think, well, that's, you know, we heard that all before. But it's the secret, that's not really a secret, to the victorious Christian life. It's the secret to handling tribulation and trial that we never wanted and never expected, but find ourselves in the midst of. Instead of trying to figure it all out, we go back to what we do know about God. And we remind ourselves of who he is, what he's done, and what he's promised yet to do. In the text we see in verse 3, and by the way, we could spend three weeks in this chapter. We, we won't. Today is my last 
opportunity to finish the book, so we're going to kind of uh, skim through the major points in it. But so much here that you could read and, and get. But first notice that, first of all, that all the forms here are past tense. This is more than just a recital of God's deeds in the past. It is said in a way of that which God will do in the future, but with the idea that it's so certain, it's so sure that we can talk about it as though it's already done. Habakkuk knows that what he's about to say of God in these coming verses, not only is true of the past, but will true of the future because we have a God that changes not. He is immutable. He does not change. By the way, let me just remind you that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He does not change. Sometimes we kind of like the God of the New Testament, and people don't like the God of the Old Testament, but it's the same God. There is between the two books a balancing of the attributes of a holy and righteous God. So notice, first of all, he is the Holy One. He is, verse 3 a says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Salah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. He is the Holy One. I never read the word holy without thinking of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Isaiah said, high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the seraphim flew and cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I believe that in modern day Christianity, we have lost some sense of the holiness of God. Theology, like everything else, tends to swing from one end to the other. And we struggle to find the middle, the balance. And in a world in which we emphasize the love of God, and we should because God is love, because God has demonstrated his love through his son, Jesus Christ, we sometimes forget that he is still the Holy One of heaven. That he is above and beyond in a class by himself. That he is wholly righteous. And I believe that it is his holiness which guards and guides all of his other attributes. So his love is a holy love. His wrath is a holy wrath. His care is a holy care. His discipline is a holy discipline. And so he calls him, he is the holy one. Secondly, he calls him the majestic one. He is the majestic one. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. The majestic one. I don't know that we sing it here. If we have, I missed it. 
one of our favorite songs in our last church was Majesty, Worship His Majesty. Unto Jesus be all honor and glory and praise. To be reminded of His majesty, of His greatness. Not only is he the holy one and the majestic one, in verses 4 and 5 we see he is the all-powerful one. He is omnipotent. That means all power. God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but fail. Is there anything too hard for God? Is the Lord's hand shortened or the arm shortened that he cannot save? No. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is impossible for God. Everything possible, God can do. He is the all-powerful one. And his brightness was as the light, verse 4 says, he has horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. And then notice in, uh, before him were the pestilence and the burning coals went forth at his feet. And then verse 6, he stood and measured the earth, he beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered, the perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. He's the everlasting one. He's the eternal one. No beginning, no end. Even the mountains and the hills will one day slide into the sea. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. But God will remain as he was from the beginning. World without end. He is the everlasting one. Lots more we could say about these verses, but we're going to have to keep working our way through. In verses 8 through 12, we were reminded that he is a wrathful one. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? The bow was made quiet, quite Naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even the word. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers, the mountains saw thee, and they trembled. An overflowing of water passed by, the deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. As the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of the city glittered spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst tresh the heathen in anger. Not very popular today to talk about the wrath of God, but the wrath of God is real. Men and women and boys and girls are in danger of the wrath of God if they do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. It's much more fun to talk about his love and his care and his concern and his pity and his compassion and all those things are good things and we should talk about them. But the reason why they're all good is because he is a God of wrath who will not let sin go unpunished. And those who refuse to accept the atonement of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary death of him, those who refuse to accept his payment for their sins will spend an eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. Verses 13 through 
paying for their own sins and never pay them all. The wrath of God. God wants us to remember that he is a wrath, wrathful not because we want to shake in our boots and be scared of him, but rather as the fact of the seriousness of what it means to die without Christ. The seriousness of what it means to ignore him and reject him or his son, Jesus Christ. And then in verses 13 through 15, we see he's the faithful one. The faithful one. Thou wentest forth for thy salvation of thy people, and even for salvation with thine anointed, thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discerning the foundation unto the neck. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of the, his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. The rejoicing was to devour poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses through the heap of great waters. He says basically this, you did what you said you're going to do. You said you're going to punish them and, and that day comes. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but the day will come when God keeps all of his promises. Good and bad. He is the faithful one. The third feature we look at is Habakkuk's promises to God. So what is it? How does Habakkuk respond to his ponderings on God? Dr. Wearsby has said this is one of the greatest confessions of faith found anywhere in Scripture. Habakkuk has faced the frightening fact that his nation will soon be invaded by a merciless enemy. The prophet knows that many of his people will go into exile and many will be slain. The land will be ruined and Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. Yet he tells God that he will trust in him no matter what happens. Listen to his confession of faith. So how does Habakkuk respond? When he hears the terrible news that Jerusalem is soon to be, his beloved country is soon to be overwhelmed by a merciless enemy, how does he respond? First of all, he says, in the day of trouble, I will rest in God's providence. Notice what verse 16 says. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto thy people, he will invade them with his troops. He said, first of all, I've got to rest in what God is doing. Hey, there's things that happen in our life. We can't figure out why God would use those, why God would do that. And one of our first things we want to do is blame it on someone else. But in the end, it is all on God's shoulder because he is the God of the universe. Nothing happens, with, happens without his design or his permission. If things could happen without God's design or his permission, then someone would be more powerful than God. Now, we know that Satan is powerful, but he's not as powerful as God. We know that men are powerful, but they're not as powerful as God. 
We've got to trust that God is all-powerful. And that even when evil is around us, that God is still in control. And we need to rest in that fact. That God is working out his providence working out his purpose and his plan in the ages and in us. That doesn't mean that the answers to our questions are easy. It doesn't mean that we get all the answer we would like, but we do get all the answer that we need. When we say goodbye, to a 16 and a half year old son, there's a lot of questions. And we didn't get all the answers we would like, but we got all the answers we needed. Trust me, even when you don't understand me, I am the Holy One. I am the Faithful One. I am the all-powerful one. I am the merciful one. And in those difficult days for us, I just kept reminding myself of what God has said over and over in his scripture. That he always does what is for his best glory and my best good. And in the evening, I would go off and go to bed those first few months and say, Lord, I do not know how the death of Wesley is for your best glory or my best good, but I'm going to trust you that it is. In the day of trouble, I will rest in God's providence. Secondly, he says, in the day of trouble, I will rejoice in God's person. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd for the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation." In the day of trouble, I will rejoice in God's person. Who is that person? He's the Savior. He's the one who sent his son to die for us. And were he never to do another good thing for us, we would have reason to worship and thank him and obey him for eternity simply in the fact that he gave his son for us. He's given us so much more than that, though. Habakkuk says, in the day of trouble, I will rest in God's providence. I will rejoice in who God is. Yes, but I still have questions. Habakkuk still had questions. But Habakkuk recognized what we all have to recognize is that God gives us the answers we need when we need them, not always when we want them. 
But like Habakkuk, no matter what we're facing, no matter what's in front of us, no matter what happens next week or next year, I can rest in the fact that God, of God's providence, I can rejoice in God's person. And finally, in the day of trouble, I will rely upon God's promises. Notice what he says, Yea, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my instrument. God has promised to take care of his people. Do you believe it? Will you rest in it? Will you rejoice? Will you rely on the promises of God? As we read that great chapter of faith in Hebrews 11, we are reminded that the majority of people there, actually all of them, never ever receive all of the promises. Just little bits here and there. Today in our class, when we say goodbye to Abraham, he's going to have one little piece of property that has a cave in a field. He's going to have a few sons. But God promised him that he'd be the father of a multitude of nations. And we've come to understand not only does that mean physical descent, but spiritual descent. And now he has millions upon millions of descendants who have either descended from him physically or spiritually. And in that, most of that happened after he died. But the New Testament is clear that he was faithful because he believed that God would keep his promises. Do you believe this morning that God will keep his promises? Amen. That doesn't mean that takes away all the questions. That doesn't mean that your heart doesn't hurt like it's going to break when certain things happen in your life. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have some wakeless nights lying in bed wondering what in the world is God doing? Why is he doing it this way? But in the day of trouble, Habakkuk says, I will rest in the, God's providence. I will rejoice in God's person. I will rely upon God's promises. Philippians 4.19 says what? My God shall supply all. Physical, spiritual, emotional, financial, all my needs. Not all my wants, but all my needs. Now, he often gives us more than we need which is wonderful, but he's promised. Or we remind him at the end of the Great Commission, and lo, I'm with you, how long? Always, even unto the end of the age. Paul wrote, I can do what? All things. <coughs> And we often use that verse in thing of something God's called us to do, and, and that's a good application. But it also means I can go through whatever God calls me to go through because he is the God of providence, because his person is holy, and because his promises are sure. 
God, I don't always know what you're doing. You may ask, say this morning, but I can't figure out exactly what God's doing. Join the club. You've got good company. Most of the prophets of the Old Testament, most of the writers of the New Testament, and many others who come between them and us have lived in a world in which they were wont to ask, what in the world is God doing? The question really doesn't change over time. What makes a difference is how you choose to respond. If you're waiting for God to give you a complete answer that satisfies you, you're never going to get it. I remind myself as I think through the book of Habakkuk that God, the first time he answers Habakkuk, says, I'm about to do something that even if I told you, you wouldn't be able to understand it. So what's the conclusion to the book? First of all, in uncertain situations, the person of faith seeks an answer from God. Not sure what's going on in your life, not sure why things are turning out the way they are, not sure why what's happening at work or in your family or in your business are going the way they're going. Seek an answer from God. Nothing wrong with asking God, is there something I need to know? Is there something I need to learn? Is there something I need to hear? Is there something I need to do? That's the first thing Habakkuk did. He sought an answer from God. In uncertain situations, the person of faith seeks an answer from God. In unsolved problems, the person of faith patiently and expectantly waits upon God. There are times when what's happening doesn't seem right to us. Doesn't seem just. But the person of faith in those unsolved problems patiently and expectantly waits upon God. Are you willing to wait upon God? Are you willing to do the hard work of waiting? How does it mean get in a chair and sit down and do nothing? But it means allowing God to reveal his purpose and plan in his time and in his way. And that may be this year. Or it may be next year. Or it may be a long ways down the road. Or maybe never. Are you willing to trust him? even when you don't understand him. And then finally, in unexpected circumstances, the person of faith rejoices in God. When our son passed away, I'd already preached on Habakkuk several times. I tell people that when you come to a difficult situation in your life, especially one you never expected, you never wanted, and you have that question about what in the world is God doing and why is he doing it this way, there's lots of things we already know in our head, but your heart has to catch up with it. 
We've heard it, we know it, but our heart has to catch up. And those first few months after our son's passing away unexpectedly and suddenly, I had to let my heart catch up with my head. I knew what Habakkuk said. But I had to let my heart catch up. And I had to pray for God's grace and God's help. I used to say, day by day, Donna said, moment by moment. We can rejoice in God, even when there's still sorrow in our hearts. It's been 14 years ago now that our son went to be with the Lord. This must be 15 years this coming March. And I still can't go to a family dinner or sit at a birthday party without thinking he should be here. There's a little book called The Empty Chair, and there is always an empty chair. And whether it's a parent or a child or a sibling, the chair's empty. But what I found is even in the midst of that ongoing sorrow, I still can find joy in the Lord. I can rejoice in his promises. I can rely upon his word. I can wait upon him for his answers in his time. I can trust him even when I don't fully understand him. Let's pray together.